think it needs to be said, no one was hurt in the making of that video, okay? <laughs> Just want to be clear. Well, good morning. Welcome to First Church. So glad you guys are here. And if you're new, my name's Chad, and we are one church that meets in multiple locations. So we have family right now joining us at our Stone Canyon campus, as well as others who will be joining us later online. So if you would, let's welcome them into our time of study here today. Well, a few years ago, I took Alex shopping with me one Saturday, and we stopped at different stores, and one store we went into was Dick's Sporting Goods, and as soon as we walked in, immediately Alex said to me, Daddy, I have to go to the bathroom, and if you've ever raised a a three-year-old, you know, you go when they say that. You don't wait, you know how much time you have, and so I was like, okay, buddy, so we went to the back of the store, right where the bathroom was, and we made it in plenty of time, no problem. But as we're finishing up, we're washing our hands, and I washed mine first, and then he washed his, and then he backed up when he was finished up against the back wall. I don't know why he did this, but he backed up against the back wall and found himself underneath the automatic hand dryer, and when he was underneath that hand dryer, the sensor picked him up, and it came on. And so it blew hot air, it scared him, he screamed, and he ran over to me, grabbed my leg. I was like, buddy, are you okay? He goes, yeah, daddy, that was fun. Can I do it again? And so I let him do it again, probably not my best dad moment, but I pulled out my phone and I filmed him doing it. Take a look at this. Isn't that great? It's the little things in life, you know? Sometimes I'm like Alex, when he first backed up against that wall, didn't realize he was underneath the automatic hand dryer. Sometimes I'm like him, and I'm not aware of my surroundings like I should be. You guys ever do that? Sometimes when I'm busy, I have a lot on my mind, distracted, I don't pay attention to the things around me like I should. Every now and then somebody will come up to me and they'll say, hey Chad, I saw you driving and I waved at you, but you didn't wave back. I just wanna let you know, if you ever wave at me and I'm driving and I don't wave back, I'm not being rude, I'm not intentionally ignoring you, I promise. I'm just focused, I'm focused on the road, man. I'm not paying attention to who's around me. It probably says a lot about my driving, but still, I'm not paying attention, I'm, I'm focused. Every now and then, Allison will come home and she will have had her hair cut or maybe she'll change things around in the house or maybe buy a new outfit and she'll wait for me to notice and she'll wait and she'll wait and she'll wait till eventually she gives up and she's like hey Chad did you notice I'm wearing a new outfit or did you notice I changed things around or got a haircut whatever and I have my go-to response every time you look great or it looks great whatever I never admit that I didn't notice you know it looks great but she knows and let me just ask you men in the room you ever suffer from that let me see a show of hands anybody ever not notice things they should notice or wife wants to notice let me ask the women in the room how many of you wives have husbands who uh, suffer from this let me see okay that's a more honest answer that's what I thought now sometimes we don't pay attention to things like we should and when it comes to life that can get us into some trouble but sometimes we can king it by with it Yet when it comes to our spiritual lives, being blind to what's around us typically creates some pretty huge problems, some pretty huge messes. Last week when we began our new series, Blind Spots, I started off with looking at a verse from 1 Peter. And 1 Peter 5, verses 8 through 9 says this, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. The Bible warns us, be alert, be awake, be clear-minded, because we have an enemy who's prowling around like a roaring lion just waiting to pounce on us, just waiting to attack us. He wants to sneak up on us and get the best of us. We have an enemy out there who wants to catch us off guard, who wants to surprise us, so we need to be clear-minded and alert. 
looking out for him. And if we're not on the lookout for him, then what's going to happen is that certain challenges and obstacles will creep into our lives that will threaten to derail our relationship with Jesus and disrupt the calling that he's placed on our lives. Things like negativity, cynicism, which we talked about last week, self-righteousness, compromise, envy, anger, burnout, and others. All those things can creep into our lives if we're not on the lookout, watching for the obstacles that Satan is putting in our path. Because no one wakes up one day and says, hey, I think I want to be negative and cynical today. No one does that. No one wakes up one morning and says, you know, I'm going to start a plan, and within 30 days, I'm going to burn out. That's my goal in life. I want to burn out. No one does that. But one day, surprise, that's where we are. That's who we've become. And this happens because of things that I like to call blind spots. Things that we should see coming, but for some reason, we don't. And so we're looking at different blind spots in this series. And what I'm talking about, so I'm clear, are hidden, ignored, or overlooked obstacles that threaten to derail our relationship with Jesus or disrupt the calling he's placed on our lives. Spiritual blind spots. And in this series, I'm presenting some of these blind spots that we all struggle with at times so that hopefully we can prevent them from, from wrecking our lives. And so last week, we looked at one of those blind spots or one of those obstacles that's often in our blind spots. We looked at negativity. And I got a ton of feedback from last week's sermon. I mean, a lot of people said, Chad, you spoke to my heart. And I could tell as I watched you guys, as I was preaching, you guys were nodding your heads. I had your attention. I even saw some of you poking one another, elbowing one another. I had your attention. Because we all know how negativity or cynicism or pessimism, we know how those things can wreck our lives. But today we're going to look at another blind spot that probably we don't see as that big of a deal, really. Today we're going to look at the blind spot, self-righteousness. Now, I know, and I just want to clarify, or I just want to qualify up front, I know that the term self-righteousness is probably not a term that we use a whole lot outside of church circles. And I try my best when I preach not just to use churchy language, because I understand we have people who didn't grow up in church, and they don't understand some of the churchy lingo, and so I try to make the gospel as clear as I can, put it on everybody's level, but sometimes we have to use words that we typically don't use in our everyday language. I mean, I bet none of you uh, overheard a conversation this past week where somebody at your uh, workplace said, you know, so-and-so, they're just acting very self-righteous today. I doubt if you heard anybody say that. We don't really throw that word around unless we're in church, but I'm using it because I think it best describes what we're going to talk about today. See, when I use the word self-righteousness, this is what I'm talking about. An unhealthy overconfidence in self, which results in an unhealthy reliance on self. Now, we may look at that and say, yeah, that's not good. But I doubt if any of us would put that on the same level as compromising our faith or our convictions or being completely cynical and negative throughout life, or burning out in life. I doubt if we would put that on the same level. We see how those things can be destructive, but self-righteousness, well, that's just more annoying, really, than it is destructive. But that's not how Jesus felt. We may not think it's that destructive, but Jesus seemed to think so. In fact, the people that Jesus confronted the most, the people that Jesus called out the most, the people that Jesus went toe-to-toe -to -toe with the most were the self-righteous, religious crowd. And we're going to look at one of those moments. 
in Luke chapter 18 when Jesus goes toe-to-toe with some people who are very confident in their own righteousness. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app on your phone or tablet, or maybe if you have our First Church app, you can look up the scripture there, follow along with us. If you don't have any of those things, the scripture's gonna be on the screen behind me, so you can follow along there, no big deal. But we're gonna look at Luke 18 and start at verse nine. And Luke introduces us to this scene by saying this. To some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everybody else. Jesus told this parable. So look at that verse. Luke sets the scene by letting us know who Jesus is talking to, who his audience is. And he says he's speaking to a bunch of people who are confident, overconfident in their own righteousness. And because of that, they look down upon everyone else. See, they're overconfident in their own ability to judge what's right and to do what's right. And so they see themselves as good and everybody else as bad or at least inferior to them. Let's put it this way. Jesus is speaking to a bunch of people who are full of themselves and because of that, they look down upon everyone else. And interestingly, we find out as we read on that these are religious people. These are people who believe in the one true God. These are people who try to follow God's law. And from all outward appearances, they were good people. I mean, they worshiped God regularly. They read the scripture regularly. They, pri- they prayed regularly. They tithed their money. They did good works. From all outward appearances, they looked like good people. But what we don't see is what Jesus is going to point out. What we don't see is what's hiding beneath the surface. And that's what Jesus is going to uncover. He's going to teach us in this passage that in some cases, those who seem closest to God may not be very close at all. And the barrier keeping them at a distance is self-righteousness. So to wake his audience up to the reality of their situation, Jesus tells a parable. Now, parables are just stories that Jesus told, and typically parables are have truth wrapped up in them. And the reason why Jesus taught in parables so much is because normally when you're calling somebody out or you're confronting somebody, if you just call them out directly, they won't listen to you, they will ignore you, they'll tune you out. But if you can wrap truth up in a story, a story that's interesting and catches their attention, then maybe you can break into their hearts. And that's what Jesus does. He tells parables. So people listen to these stories and then by the very end, it's hit them hard. These parables are easy to understand but they're not always easy to apply. And that's the case for this parable that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 18. It's a simple story. It's a story of two men. That's all we have to keep up with. It only has two characters in it, two men. And immediately when Jesus started telling this story, his first century listeners, his audience that day, they would have known immediately, as Jesus introduced these two guys, who is the bad guy and who is the good guy. They would have known immediately who was gonna win out in the story and who was gonna lose. They would have known who the hero was and who the villain was. And so Jesus introduces us to these two men in this way, verse 10. Jesus says, two men went up to the temple, which is the place of worship, the temple, to pray. One, a Pharisee, and the other, a tax collector. Now, like I said, Jesus' first listeners, they would have known immediately who the good guy was and who the bad guy was. The good guy of the story was obviously the Pharisee. Anytime you study a passage of scripture, it's important that you understand the context in which it's given. The context is extremely important. And in the first century world, Pharisees were extremely important people who were well-trained and well-educated in God's law. And not only that, they were well-respected. They were the local religious leaders. And everyone looked up to them. 
See, if you grew up in church like me, you probably grew up thinking of the Pharisees as uh, bad guys, because they were the guys who were always questioning Jesus, always trying to trap Jesus. So when I hear the word Pharisee, I think bad guy, but that wasn't the case for Jesus' first century listeners. The Pharisees were well respected. They were beloved. Everybody turned to them. And because of their high moral standard, everybody thought they were the closest to God. I mean, if you had a Pharisee over to your house for dinner, you would have been pulling out your cell phone, taking a selfie with him, and putting it all over social media because you wanted to be seen with somebody like that. I went to a UK basketball game a couple years ago with a buddy of mine, his name is CJ, and we got these great seats because it was Thanksgiving weekend, so all the students were gone, and they opened up the student section right down front to those who were going to wait in line for hours and get the tickets. I was one of those guys who waited in line for hours to get those tickets. We were right down front, it was awesome, uh, and so we got in there early, and as we're waiting for the game to start, Rex Chapman walks by. Now, if you're not a basketball guy, you probably don't know who Rex Chapman is, but he was a player for UK, awesome player, went on played for years in the NBA, just a phenomenal basketball player. And so as he's, he's retired now, but as he was walking by, his back of that game, I saw him, and my buddy CJ saw him, and so we hauled out to him, hey, Rex, can you come here a second? And he walked over to us and said, can we take a picture with you? And so I pulled out my cell phone, and we took a picture with him. Here it is, if you want to look at it. It was real up close, because we were trying to take this selfie, but there's our picture with Rex Trapman. After we got finished, I turned to him. I said, thanks, Rex. Sorry to bother you. I know you act like you were busy, but uh, thanks for doing that. And he was just like, oh, no problem, guys. I'm used to it. Now, that may have shown his arrogance a little bit when he said that, I'm used to it. But still, if you're a celebrity, if you're somebody who's well-known and well-liked, you're probably used to people asking to take their picture with you. I mean, honestly, I get this all the time in our church lobby. People walk up to me and, hey, can I have a picture with you? Just like this guy a few weeks ago. Take a look at this. He just had to have a selfie with me. I don't, brought it back to me later and I signed it. So, no, I'm kidding, not really. No, this, that selfie was actually taken the first Sunday I ever preached here at First Church, and Matt took it. That's Matt, our executive minister. You guys know him. And uh, he put it up on Facebook and said, so excited to have our new senior minister with us. So I appreciated that. Uh, Matt's, Matt's a good friend. Just gave him a hard time. But still, I'm not used to people wanting pictures with me. But if you were a Pharisee in the first century world, you were used to people wanting your attention, wanting to be around you. You were well-liked. You were well-respected. And when it came to their morality, Pharisees seemed to have a perfect button-up life. They were obsessed with following God's law. And because of their obedience to the Jewish law, everyone considered them the most spiritual people around. And then you have the other guy in the story, the tax collector. And the tax collector, he was the complete opposite of a Pharisee. As Jesus introduced these two characters, that crowd that they would have known right away, that's the bad guy, that's the villain, because tax collectors were not very popular. They were not well-liked, they were not respected. Everybody knew who they were. They were shady con men who cheated people out of money. Not only that, they worked for the enemy, they worked for the Roman government. And the Jews, they were oppressed by the Romans and so they saw them as traitors. The Pharisees might have been obsessed with following the law, but tax collectors, they threw the law out a long time ago. They did whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted. These two men could not have been more different. So everyone's assuming, as Jesus begins the story, who the good guy is and who the bad guy is. That is until Jesus actually tells the story. Pick up with me, if you would, Luke 18, starting at verse 11. Remember, Jesus says, two men go to pray, Pharisee tax collector, and this is what happens. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself, prayed about himself in the temple now, God, I thank you 
then I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth. I tithe all my money. Verse 13, but the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. He's bowing his head here. He beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then Jesus says, I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, the Pharisee, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. By the time Jesus finished telling this story, shockwaves probably went out throughout the crowd. They were stunned. No one expected that ending. Now I can tell, since there wasn't an audible gasp in the crowd today, we're not near as stunned as probably Jesus' first century crowd was. But let me break down what's going on here. Jesus allowed the bad guy to win. And that's not supposed to happen. My son Alex and my daughter Addie, they love the Disney Toy Story movies, just love them to death. And so we've watched them all several times. And I remember when Alex first started watching the Toy Story movies, all three of them, you know, one, two, and three. And by the way, I hear there's a fourth one coming out. Can't wait for that. I like them as much as he does and, and Addie does as well. But uh, we were watching these different movies and we got to the third one. And the bad guy in the third one is a guy named Lotso Bear. He's a big purple bear. And I've got a stuffed animal of Lotso right here. And Alex, every time Lotso Bear would come on, would get scared, especially when he turns kind of evil at the end of the movie. Alex would get scared, he'd cover his eyes. He didn't like Lotso at all. And so this kind of bothered us. And we had bought him other Toy Story toys, you know, like Buzz Lightyear and Woody. And so uh, a friend of ours decided, well, I'm gonna buy him Lotso. Because maybe if I buy him Lotso Bear, then that will, you know, he'll be right there in front of him. He'll realize there's nothing to be scared of. He'll be fine. Well, I think that kind of backfired because if you know the premise of the Toy Story movies, the toys come alive. Alex was for sure he was going to come alive in the middle of the night and get him. And so that really didn't work out. But we just kept teaching, hey, listen, Lotso's not real. He's fictional. It's nothing to worry about. You don't have to worry about it. And eventually, either Alex matured or got over it, and he was fine. And a funny thing happened. Lotso Bear ended up becoming his favorite toy. He took Lotso Bear with him everywhere he went. The first time that we came to Oklahoma, when I was being interviewed by First Church for the very first time on site, we got off the plane in Tulsa with him carrying Lotso Bear. He took Lotso with him everywhere. So Lotso came with us to Oklahoma the very first time. And, and it's funny, we were on the plane, and there's this guy on the plane, this big tall guy, had a cowboy hat on, boots. I mean, he looked like a cowboy. He really did. And we're not used to that where I'm from. And so Alex saw him, and he goes, look, Dad, a real-life Sheriff Woody. And so he held up Lotso Bear uh, to that guy to see if he recognized him. And the guy just looked at Alex like, oh, what a cute kid. But still. But Alice and I started to worry after that because we thought, you know, we just wanted him to get over his fear of Lotso Bear. We don't want him to like, identify with Lotso. We don't want Lotso to become his favorite character. Isn't that weird if your kid wants to carry around the bad guy all the time? I mean, we didn't want that. And we thought, oh, we need to you know, take Lotso away or something. And we didn't. He got over that too. But you know, you're not supposed to like the bad guy. You're not supposed to cheer for the bad guy. He's not supposed to be your favorite character. And so these people are listening to Jesus tell the story and thinking, what? What's going on here? But Jesus letting them know, things are not always as they seem. Remember what I said earlier in the message. In some cases, those who seem closest to God may not be very close at all. 
and the barrier keeping them at a distance is self-righteousness. So what Jesus is doing in this parable is giving us a warning. It doesn't matter how many times you pray. It doesn't matter how often you're at church. It doesn't matter how often you give or how many Bible passages you have memorized. All that stuff doesn't matter if you have an overinflated view of yourself, if you're relying way too much on yourself. And Jesus goes on to explain why self-righteousness is so dangerous. And the first thing that he teaches us is this. Self-righteousness, it warps the view we have of ourselves. It distorts the view we have of ourselves. I want you to pay careful attention to the posture of both the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee stood tall when he walked into the temple that day. His shoulders were cocked back. He walked right into the innermost part of the temple where you would pray, and he prayed out loud. That's how you prayed back then, out loud, touting his spiritual resume. He was very proud of himself, and he wanted everyone to know what he did and what he had accomplished. He prayed in such a way that it was all about him. For him, talking to God, worshiping God, wasn't a privilege. It was a right that he deserved. It was a right he had earned. And so he humble bragged his way through his entire prayer. You guys know what a humble brag is? It's kind of like when you have a small group meeting or a class meeting, whatever, in church, and you get together and it's prayer time, you're taking prayer requests, and somebody says, well, you know, this past week I did this, and God let me do this, and I accomplished this, and I, 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 and so I'm praying that God allows me to do the same thing next week. And you're just thinking, okay, is that a real prayer request? You're just bragging about what you did this past week. You know, what's going on? It's a humble brag, right? And that's what this guy did. He humble bragged his way through this entire prayer. It's as if he's saying, oh, God, you are so welcome for me being so good. Oh, God, aren't you glad that I'm on your team? The tax collector, on the other hand, he wouldn't even go into the place of prayer. He stood at a distance. He wouldn't raise his head. He kept his head bowed. He beats his chest. And he says, oh, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. You could almost hear the pain in his voice. See, this man, he knew who God was, he knew who he was, and he prayed accordingly. And Jesus says that's why the good guy, the supposed good guy, leaves lost. But the supposed bad guy leaves the temple right with God. Here's the point that Jesus is trying to make. The lost think they're good. The saved know they're not. The lost think they can earn God's approval, that they can earn God's love. The saved know they can't. Jesus teaches, the Bible teaches, it's not our goodness that saves, but God's grace. Because here's the thing, none of us are good enough for God. None of us deserve the reward of heaven. None of us deserve to be part of the church. None of us deserve to volunteer in the church. None of us deserve the identity that God has given us. None of us deserve to have the debt of our sin taken away. We're all in the same boat. It doesn't matter if you have sinned one time or a billion times. We all fall short of God's glory. And the only way for us to get to God is if we humble ourselves, surrender to him, and realize how much we desperately need his grace. That's why Paul says in Romans 3, verse 23, for everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. We're all in the same boat. Yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. When you have a self-righteous attitude, 
it distorts, it warps the view you have of yourself. It also does something else. It also warps the view you have of others. Self-righteousness warps and distorts our view of others. Notice how the Pharisee said, thank you God that I'm not like these other people. Thank you God that I'm not like that tax collector over there. See, self-righteousness, it leads to contempt. We think so highly of ourselves that we start to degrade other people, put others down in order to promote ourselves or even justify ourselves. You ever been around somebody like that who just constantly puts other people down in order to make themselves look better? See, what we end up doing is playing the comparison game. And in our pride, we pick out other people who we think are less than us, and we say, hey, I'm superior to them. I'm better off than them. That must make me a good person. Kerry Newhoff, a Christian author, he calls this comparagance. I love that term, comparagance. And it's arrogance born of comparison, comparagance. And deep down, we know we shouldn't do this. But we cloak it with statements like this. How could they? Almost sounds humble, doesn't it? How could they? How could they live like that? How could they do that? How could they say that? How could they believe that? How could they? And all we end up doing is isolating ourselves from them. And instead of loving them as Jesus would love them, we end up judging them, ignoring them, even condemning them. We create what I like to call a those people list. I'm so glad I'm not like those people. And I'm glad I'm different from those people over there. And what we miss is we are those people. We're all in the same boat. And we end up promoting ourselves, thinking that we're good, everybody else is bad, and we lose sight of the spiritual well-being of others. And instead, all we want to do is just expose their wrongness to promote our rightness. And if we're honest and transparent today, I think we've all done that. Let me just say, you guys know me. You know that I'm a transparent guy. I don't try to pretend to be somebody I'm not. And I've had moments, and I'm embarrassed of now, why I've done just that. I remember when I was a freshman in Bible college, I got all this new knowledge, and I was very proud of everything that I knew, you know. It went to my head. And one day after one of my Bible classes, I'm sitting in the cafeteria, a bunch of my friends, and this girl comes and sits down. I didn't know that well. She was a freshman too. And she said something that we just talked about in class, and she was completely wrong. I mean, she had no biblical evidence to back up what she was saying. She was just dead wrong. So I called her on it. I wasn't very nice about it. I just called her on it. And she came back. She shot back at me. And so a theological debate broke out right there in the cafeteria. And so she would say something, and I would counter it. And I had a bunch of friends around me. I mean, they were like cheering me on and clapping for me. I mean, yeah, you get her, Chad. Yeah, you set her straight. She had some people supporting her who were cheering her on. And we went back and forth for a good amount of time. And I just want to be honest with you. I'm not saying this to brag. I'm saying this because it's what happened. I was blasting her. I was blowing her out of the water. Like, I had biblical evidence to back up what I was saying, biblical truth. She didn't. And so she had very weak arguments. And you could tell she was losing supporters as she went on. And eventually she gave up. And she made this final argument. I countered it. And she got up and she left the table crying. And all my buddies sitting around were cheering me on. and saying, good job, Chad, you showed her, you set her straight. And in that moment, I felt about that big. And I went and I found her. And I told her I was sorry. I said, listen, I was more concerned about being right and everybody else thinking that I was right than you, and I'm sorry. It's not how Jesus would have acted. 
I said, I'm willing to talk to you if you're willing to talk to me about this issue, but I won't yell at you anymore. I won't degrade you anymore. I'll just talk to you like a friend. And she looked at me and she said, Chad, I'm a fairly new Christian, so I don't know a whole lot, but I'm willing to talk to you about this issue if you'll talk to me like you are right now, but I don't want to talk to that guy who's back in the cafeteria. And I looked at her and kind of laughed and I said, I don't want to talk to that guy either. So I talked to her and guess what? She came around and she understood what God's word said. But it was all because I treated her like a person instead of just focusing on my rightness. See, sometimes we forget that we're all sick. We all mess up. And so we forget to show grace to others that God has shown us. In Mark 2, 17, Jesus says, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. The last thing that self-righteousness does is this. Self-righteousness warps our view of God. The Pharisee believed life was a merit system. He hoped that all of his good deeds would outweigh his bad deeds. But here's the thing. Christianity is not a merit system. God isn't waiting for you to get your act together. God isn't giving a bunch of redos so you can just try harder the next time. Because that type of life, it is exhausting. I've tried it. It doesn't work. No, Christianity isn't a merit system. Christianity is a grace system. Self-righteous people have the wrong view of God. They see God as this cosmic scorekeeper, but that's not the picture Jesus paints of God. Jesus earned what we could not earn. He died the death we deserve to die so that we could live the life God created us to live. He gave us the reward that only he deserved, which is being made right with God. Jesus went to the cross not so that we could slightly modify our behavior. He went to the cross because we were dead in our sin with no hope, and he wanted to resurrect us to life again so that we could live the life that God designed us to live. Jesus went to the cross to make us alive when we were dead. See, a merit system is a crushing burden under which none of us can stand. But grace sets us free to live the life God created us to live. A merit system says you have to earn God's love. Grace reminds us that we already have it. And then that motivates us to live for God. Sometimes people will come to me and they will say, so Chad, are you saying that good works don't matter? I mean, the Bible says we're saved by grace and uh, through faith and not by good works. So are you saying that good works don't matter? No, the Bible does not teach that. Good works do matter. They are extremely important. But here's the thing. Salvation is not a result of our good works. Our good works are a result of our salvation. A lot of times we have it flipped. We don't earn our salvation. But here's the thing, once we are saved and we let Jesus come into our lives and he works within us and transforms us, then we go out and do good works as a response to the love and grace that Jesus has showed us. Jesus says you will tell a tree by its fruit. So our good works now are proof that Jesus is working in our lives. Salvation is not a result of our good works. Our good works are a result of our salvation. And I love this parable. I love it because no matter who you resonated with in the story, either the tax collector or the Pharisee, your next step is the same. We should all have the attitude of the tax collector. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. 
Whether you've been like the Pharisee and live, been living self-righteous or whether you're in the tax collector who realizes how sinful you are, your next step is the same. God, have mercy on me, a sinner, because here's the thing, and I'm living proof of that. God will give you his mercy, and that mercy will change you and will motivate you to be the man or the woman that God created you to be. Sometimes I need to be reminded I'm not good, I'm saved. And the goal of life is not to be good because none of us are good enough. The goal of life is to be saved. And when we're saved, then God will work in us so we can be transformed into the people he designed us to be. That salvation, that love that we experience will give us self-worth and it will be our motivation for life. Is that what you need to be reminded of today? You're not good, you're saved. And that makes all the difference in the world. Would you bow with me? Father, we thank you so much for today, this time we've had to meet together as your people in this place. And Father, self-righteousness, having this overconfidence in ourselves, Father, it it can be something that really does wreck our lives. Father, it can disrupt the plan you have for us. It can get in the way of where you want us to go. So Father, I just pray that we be a humble people who just rely on your mercy every single day, realizing that we're not good, but we're saved. And realizing that the whole goal of life is to live in that salvation and allow you to work in us, change us, and transform us. So no matter where anyone is today, myself included, Our next step, our attitude should be this. Oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And as we experience your mercy, may it empower us to be the people you've created us to be. In the name of Jesus, I pray, amen.